Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nick Flanagan. You're listening to Nick Flanagan Weekly. Thank you for listening. Uh, I am having a heck of a time with sound and this podcast. Lately, I have a nice setup, but it can sound weird sometimes, and I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to Nick Flanagan Weekly. I'm Nick. Sometimes there are solo episodes, but today on Nick Flanagan Weekly, we've got an interview, a chat, more of a chat, with my buddy Damian Abraham of Fucked Up, The Wrestlers, on and on and on, many projects. Be sure you check out Year of the Horse. What can I say? I've had him on the podcast a lot. He's in the studio, so to speak, the Zoomio, and my gosh, am I embarrassed. He's got the greatest sounding voice, and there I am in the bottom uh, all low and weird, so I apologize for my sound, but you'll definitely hear what Damien has to say. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk, it was on the Day of Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada, so we talk about that a bit. Talk about wrestling at the end. We talk about his recently canceled Fucked Up tour, opening for Faith No More. Talk about all kinds of things. I really hope you enjoy it. Be sure you follow him at Leffer Damien and Turned Out a Punk, his podcast. He recently interviewed John Brannon of Negative Approach and Laughing Hyenas. That was a great interview. He's an amazing frontman. Be sure you check out his bands, John Brannon's bands. He's had Billy Bragg on. He's had all kinds of people. It's great. And uh, here is the podcast with Damian Abraham. Oh, and if you want to support this podcast, ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. It's a great way to support or just subscribe, rate, blah, 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 all that really cool stuff. Here's my talk with Damian Abraham. Let's start the podcast right now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Nick's podcast. I'm Damian. I'm the host uh, filling in for Nick, who is indisposed right now doing some garbage duty and uh, as well as some coffee barista duty. I can see him in the background of his screen. He is taking his sweet, sweet time to get this coffee. But it's okay. I showed up to his podcast with my own tea. He didn't even have a craft services table waiting for us here. I'll tell you, grinding up my cannabis because I know Nick and I will be getting loose. And so I can smoke away on this thing. And here's Nick back on his podcast. Welcome back to the Nick podcast hosted by Nick. Still a little light hosting while you were gone, Nick. Yeah, I was going to say everything you just said, I'm going to have to hear after. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not, I didn't insult you. It wasn't like saying horrible things. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not a meanie. No, no, you're not. You've got you got that out of your system early, which we've discussed. Yep. Yeah, I think we all got it out of our system. I, and now we're just like broken humans. <laughs> I argue with people on the street all the time. You do? Not all the time, but you know. If I get, I, do you drive? I can't remember. No, no. It's the world's safer that way. Yeah, I think if driving means that you're there's more conflict you know not necessarily escalating conflict but the moments where someone will be like what are you doing and then you go what are you doing and i mostly argue with people in a pedestrian driver cycle not cyclist but i realized i'm a pretty reckless walker the other day as i was crossing a street like running for dear life like oh geez i should never do this in front of my kids and and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a, a reckless walker. So I'd probably be a, a very reckless driver. Well, we have the dumbest rule that it's not a rule, but it's something that the cops have tried to tell people is true. And I don't think it's true. We're like, 
You can't smoke weed while you're driving? Because that is, you're right, bullshit. Oh, I see everybody doing that. I, I know, everyone does it. I think the fact they're doing that is bullshit. It's crazy. No, no, I, let's be honest. Like, most people that are willing to chance smoking high can definitely drive high. Because if you're, like, freaked out about driving stoned, cannabis is the drug that will make you go, that's a really bad idea. Let's not do that. Whereas booze, you're like, oh, this is fucking awesome. Let's get behind the wheel of a car. I'm going to... I'm gonna rage now. I mean, I don't think that. Although I remember in like Los Angeles being like, I don't want to have one drink before I drive. And my friends would be like, No, you can have one. You can even have two. <laughs> you know, just don't have three. <coughs> oh yeah. So, Hollywood it in LA, it's like a different world. Like when you went out there, Nick, I was worried because it's like it's a place you can get lost as a person because it's just so limitless. It's like every day you wake up and like, there's literally, it's like waking up in Grand Theft Auto. You could do anything. You could be a cab driver, you could <laughs> put out a fire, or you could murder a bunch of people. I mean, it is definitely a place where anything is possible, generally in a negative way, <laughs> you know? But also there's a chance, like, and I know this is bullshit and this is a Hollywood dream and this is what keeps me going, but there is a chance you could be actually discovered. You know, like the odds are like 50% chance you do a bunch of drugs and end up chilling at someone's house. 20% chance you get involved in a super violent crime. 30% chance, you know, you uh, just get stuck in traffic all day. I mean, 20% chance. And then there's that 10% chance that you get famous. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've seen elements of that happen. I just wonder, you know, how old is too old? Hootie was in his 40s when he did it. Hootie had been learning guitar for how long? Well, yeah, but you don't have to do it with guitar, Nick. I'm not saying you're going to, we, we have to be Hootie. We can do Hootie-esque things in our own chosen fields. I'm just saying, like. Went from using me as the example to including yourself within the example. Yeah, we're all, we're all in this. Anyone that, anyone that decided in their 20s, hey, this is a great idea. I'm going to make my living in the arts is now faced with the reality of like, fuck, that was an uncertain choice to make. <laughs> Pardon me? You've been discovered, right? I don't know if I've been discovered, but I just like fought long enough and, and just kind of like, we lucked out. We've definitely, we lucked out. Fucked up got discovered uh, by the hipster monolith that was Vice at a time when that meant a lot. And so I think that really helped us sort of break out of, what would have been, um, you know, a, a, a eventually like a limitation put on what we were doing. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like you guys had enough uh, shifts. I don't think all of your shifts as a band would have happened without, with or without Vice specifically. I think the only thing is maybe those offered you avenues in order to get people to do collaborate with you on like the weird collaborations as it's bread and butter yeah i think i think fucked up in general it's like a series of uh alchemy and weird uh science and 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 crypto zoology that brought us to this point you know and i think we're just like like if it's almost like oh how did you do it i'm like oh there's just like so many weird things that happened and not that we did it on any sort of major level but like you know, I think it's that's wild when we look around at the people around us, how many people like 
did it, you know, and did something where they're like able to to do what they want to do, which is I always find amazing, you know, like there's so many people in our sphere that just like in this period where we kind of came up, like wound up doing amazing things in, in their chosen profession. So, you know, I feel uh, lucky to have had that that ride, a little bit of that ride myself. Yeah, I mean, I guess in that sense, sometimes I need to remember I have sort of done what I wanted to do. You're a famous frontman, Nick. You're you're well you're well regarded as one of the great Toronto front people ever. Problem is, I'm not fronting anything now, so I got to find another thing. Yeah, it's fronting. Trying to find something to front is very hard. As someone who was a, a fellow fronter, weekly. Pardon me. Fronting this podcast. Yeah, but fronting a podcast doesn't feel the same as fronting a band. Like when you're fronting a band, it feels like you have people listening to you every word and you have like troops at your disposal. When you're doing a podcast, it feels very alone. I mean, that is a thing. It's not just fronting, even fronting comedy, let's say, as a comedian. It's like there is a reason uh, comedians are always like trying to chum up with bands and band people. And it's because it's rare that there is a comic who is able, especially the frontman thing, like they do exist, but I feel like it's hard to sort of toe the line between, you know, being a funny, funny and musical and being musical and funny. I think performers in that sphere often have tremendous musical skills, outshining me for sure. But, um, they apply them within comedy. Like they'll be like, you know, you have like, um, I mean, Tim Heidecker is someone who has his earnest stuff as well. But and of course, someone like Greg Turkington, I wouldn't even know how to describe his. But those people are more like closer to. Well, Greg, Greg, like it's like a double life, you know, like the people that knew, like obviously other than yourselves, yourself and like people that are like a certain type of fan, but like the people that like his comedy weren't listening to the zip code rapists they weren't before but now i think that because of on cinema the oh yeah the um information about greg is a little more out there and he's done a few um in like you know being himself interviews and podcasts so and he just had an art show did you know that no no wow that's awesome him and this really cool guy jp before that uh have an art show in san diego so it's like these funny drawings that greg did they're great wasn't his band Faxhead? was that it also in Faxhead, yes Faxhead, right f-a-x-e-h-e-a-d is it i believe there was one called hello kitty on ice or something okay wait one sec i wonder what he's up to damien has is off camera now we're on a camera zoom I'm looking at his high quality mic and his uh, pop screen. I don't know where he is. I'm thinking he's getting information about Greg Turkington because that's kind of, you know, he's got a lot of records in there. Damien, you can't see it, but he's got the entire room is full of records and there's action figures. What I just did was like scribed audio. It's not where I thought it would be. I, thought, I have a I have a really cool Faxhead record that has like all this shit in it. That's amazing. 
that uh, I got like a promo copy, but it has like little zines and little drawings in it too and stuff. But oh, that's so cool! I think um, it's in another place. Actually, you know, to make a online suggestion to both you and the audience listening, um, there is a really good thing online that provides a lot of information about Greg, and it's uh, um, an episode of Tom Green Live from you know. Yeah that really ahead of its time kind of in his house talk show that Tom Green did. Uh, but the guest host is Mike H from Daiquiri and major entertainer Mike H. Uh, he's been a forever opener for Neil Hamburger. And it's and his guest is, is, is uh, Greg Turkington. And so one thing about Mike that people don't necessarily know if you just see his music project is he is like an expert on certain things. And so he dives deep into Greg's ephemera and all the stuff he's done. And there's even clips of Baxhead and Zip Code Rapist. Oh, wow. Live shows and stuff. And I definitely recommend it if you're interested in Greg Turkington. That um, whole culture of that kind of music is just like such a, like that, that thing's like just like a gone culture now. Like bands, like aggressive noise bands and confrontational noise bands that were like shocking. Yeah, like Sockeye is kind of in that ballpark. Yep. And, uh, and Sockeye are, I mean, that stuff, a lot of the time people would hear it and go like, well, that's offensive and shocking. And it's like, when we would hear it at the time, at the time being five years ago, <laughs> as the ceiling on it, you'd, you'd, you'd be like, it's clearly tongue in cheek, like very obviously these, and it's like home recorded and there is no reason it should exist. And yet it does. And that's mm-hmm. exciting to me. You know, the frogs are a little bit. That, that was a band I was just going to bring up like a band that, that like, you know, until you start flipping through zines from the nineties, you don't appreciate how big this band was. I mean, obviously not commercially big, but I mean, like, like everyone loved this band. Like they were, they were the turnstile of their era. I barely know what that means, but I'm. You haven't been following Turnstiles blowing up, dude. It's awesome. It's like a, a hardcore band. Like it's it's happening again. I feel like uh, I feel like the spring has dawned again. Oh my god, that would be so good for me, personally. <laughs> 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 I need my easy action, my John Brannon, uh, you know, third act. Please oh. do a Turnstile style band, Nick. Please, please do a Turnstile band. Like, like emo hardcore kind of it's it's like it's like very it's an it's like informed by 90s hardcore it's informed by you know i, I love their i love their band i like this record i think is really good i like the record before this a lot like the record before this was like one of my favorite records um that that year that it came out but it's like yeah they're kind of like informed by that stuff but they're also like informed by the fact that like you know you and me growing up the the periphery alternative stuff that we were seeing on TV and kind of getting into was like Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr. Because, you know, it was on TV, like it was being played in the mainstream. And I think by the same way, these guys are kind of like casually informed by Korn and Slipknot and stuff that doesn't necessarily resonate with me. But hearing them bring those influences into what they're doing, is, is it's, it's really cool. It's like I'm also just excited that there's something exciting happen. Describing my reaction to when I first heard Lil Peep for the I'm not even kidding. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And he connected to punk. He connected to punk, right? 
is Lil Peep connected to Punk? Punk? That's a really good question. He had such a yes. Yeah, right. He had like a hardcore band. No, what? I'm sure he was like maybe in a pop punk band, but like his photographer is like, dude, he, like wigs. Adams, Adam, that dude, Adam, who uh, took photos for Dillinger Four back in the day. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Wiggy, who directed one of my favorite videos of his. For oh, really? Ben's truck. <laughs> okay, I don't. I'm not as versed in Little Peep as you are. Yep. Um, no, Little Peep is the exact same. That's what I'm saying. Like the first time I heard it, I was like, "What am I listening to?" And it's like actually, it's like hip hop. It's been it's influenced by. Um, Corn and, and Lincoln Park. And yeah, and I like it better than that stuff because that era was just not for me. And I mean, you mentioned a while ago, uh, our Tom uh, retweeted you uh, saying that you know when Woodstock '99 happened, none of us cared. No, none of us cared. And the depths that none of us cared is incomprehensible to those who were not there. We yeah, fully, fully did not care. Now look, Woodstock '94. I'll give you that. I watched some of that pay per view, or whatever it was. I, I saw Nine Inch Nails on it, a couple things, but that was barely interesting. People in that era of our ilk, and Woodstock '99 felt like it was a reverse event. Yeah, the further away we could be from that, the better, you know. And and uh, that obviously proved true. And that's what made me watch the. When I watched that documentary, I didn't even finish the documentary movie. I just was like, I still can barely bring myself to care about this. Because, of course, all of this happened. And, of course, it sucked. Yeah. Like, talk about tricking a generation rather than about... (laughs) No, like, the the idea that this was, like, some sort of Altamont-type coming to realization for a generation is ridiculous and false equivalency. Like this was not Altamont. This was like, everyone knew what was up the whole time. Like everyone was like, Oh, this thing sucks. and seems like a scam right out of the jump. Like the idea that this was like, anyone thought this was going to be like a recapturing of the original Woodstock vibe, like 94, they kind of sold people on that gimmick. But by 99, we were all like, this is terrible. Ryan Gavel was there though. eh? Is that the guy who took those pictures? That you're, no, who's Ryan Gavel? You know Ryan Gavel from, uh, he was in No Warning. He was oh, wow. in, yeah, bass player, dude. He, he uh, him and his girlfriend at the time were in a mall in Syracuse and saw Zach De La Roca and went up to him and just started talking to him. And he was like, you guys want tickets for the night? And they were like, yeah, sure. And so they went to the show and their names weren't at the door, but they found like an easy place to sneak in. <laughs> so they just stuck in and watched a little bit and then they went home. Zach Rosa is apparently very approachable. I hear he's, I, I met him one time in an elevator and I talked to him for like a minute and a half and he was super cool. And that was my only interaction with him. I would love to like, have you ever watched my favorite, my, my favorite thing on the internet is that inside out reunion video. Have you ever watched that shit? Oh. Dude, it is. It like, it is amazing. It's them playing a club show. Rage Against the Machine is already fucking huge. But he like somehow like just well he went back and it's like a benefit for sort of this indigenous uh, rights group and he's giving this speech about how all of the food in in North America is taken from indigenous cultures and like this whole really sort of moving speech and this guy yells shut up and play and he just tell and he stops and he like talks this dude down and it's like the best and they go into uh, I think they go into burning fight 
and it is just crushing, crushing, Nick. That's awesome. I'll have to find that online. It's I've watched it many times in a bathroom after a show while smoking weed. Well, look, not to get serious for a moment, but I feel like I want to address it because I ain't wearing orange or any shit today. But uh, today is in Canada, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And I want to acknowledge that because it's important. It's very important. Um, if anyone's listening from abroad or is somehow not checked in on this kind of thing, it's uh, it's long awaited, I would say, long deserved or whatever. But it's also in a lot of danger of being an empty thing. Um, uh, it also puts a lot of pressure and onus on indigenous peoples to like share traumas and to yeah. dig into those things. Like it's it feels like it's a day that is is not being handled the way it should yet by the the larger i guess can country of canada yet like it feels it feels like it's a day that we definitely need and it's a day that is sadly warranted because of hundreds of years of colon that goes to the present day but like colonial bullshit that yeah. indigenous peoples in canada have had to deal with but yeah, I think the odds of you having this out in time for the today it, are very slim. I don't think anyone's going to be listening to this on the day of, but... Oh, no. You don't know. Because I, part of what I'm thinking here is, Damien, I don't think I'm going to need to edit this a lot. <laughs> okay, Nick. I'm, I'm getting that vibe. I'm getting a vibe that we are, like, so on the same wavelength today, except for the fact that you're laughing a lot about 30 seconds out of a conversation about truth and reconciliation. Except for that, uh, I'm gonna have to know all the chuckles. No, um, it's, uh, I, I very well might get it out tonight, but if I don't, I'll get it out tomorrow and people will know that I did it on the day of truth and reconciliation. And guess what? What's that? Better if I put it out next month or something and people are still talking about it. Absolutely. Well, no, it's something that, you know, it, it's, it's not just a day and it's, it's something that's ongoing. It's not just a historical injustice. It's a present day injustice and injustices. Yeah. And I and, mean, on some level, it's good that, you know, compared to certain countries, Canada is, you know, officially addressing this as a day. Now, what's not good is, you know, we're two days out of uh, the uh, government of Canada is trying to fight paying back an amount of money yeah. to indigenous people for child uh, uh, welfare uh, funding that was uh, not properly funded. In other words, they owe money that they never gave to help the safety of indigenous children. And they are fighting the amount. And it's been rejected twice now uh, by the Human Rights Board. Canada has been blocked from appealing the amount that they owe, but they're trying, they keep trying. So when you hear Pierre Trudeau Jr. say, you know, oh, we're, we're very sorry about everything that today is a day of reflection, of peace. It's not a fucking day of reflection, not for the government. It's a day of decision, uh, uh, of, of um, you know, just give the shit back, <laughs> you know, make, try to make it better immediately. <laughs> Justin Trudeau is really good at acknowledging things, not necessarily doing the yeah. work that needs to be done. I'm That's... stabbing you right now, you know, yeah. like, it's that kind of thing where like, and I actually think that a lot of um, online discourse is so pointed sometimes that you don't realize that it's acknowledgement without 
movement and it winds up like you were saying with the people who have been through things uh re-traumatizing them or sort of forcing them into a situation to explain over and over again what it is that happened and uh i i remember that came up someone i know was posting about these horrible images of uh horseback men on horseback ice agents you know dry driving back uh, Haitian, black Haitian immigrants. And she was just saying, they were just saying like, when you share those images, you're just reopening so much pain in people's uh, life. And if mm -hmm. you're doing it with in, like some sort of true making it right in mind, you're just saying, this is bad. You know, you might have, not to say it's bad to mention it's just like maybe don't accompany it with these images you know and because the imagery is uh, really painful which is really ironic because coming from punk i mean the whole thing with punk rock was like half of these bands were like using un no consent pictures of degradation despair and violence as a means of saying we are a band that is socially conscious. Um, and I just wonder if that sort of thinking that I just described applies. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's half the punk bands, but there were a lot of hard, punk and hardcore bands, specifically crust bands, that would use these sort of shocking images. And I think... But Dead Kennedys as well. Dead Kennedys definitely too. Um, but I think it was a attempt at these people to kind of like bring attention to it like we live in such a different world now where the idea of like everything is monetized now and everything is worth the same currency which is one click and that could be a news story about something horrible happening in the world that could be a report of a covid outbreak that could be a new song by a band that could be a new comedy sketch but they're all worth the same like we have a complete democratization of information and because of that, it's just changed the way we have access to everything. And I think because of that, punk bands now kind of realize what they were doing before. And I don't think there was sort of a, a necessary second thought as to what these images were going to do to people that were going to see them that lived through this stuff. Because I think at the time, maybe not the Dead Kennedys, because I think they had much higher aspirations. But I think like, you know, certainly uh, I'm trying to think about a band that really did this sort of stuff right now off the top of my head but like you know charge do it a little bit per, who discharge i was trying to think of the discharge record that has that but i don't think there's actually a discharge record that has something right, like that. like every other db band after yeah discharge. yeah but there's like there there are certainly bands like that that but put 90s bands might have yeah yeah like or or like um oh god I'm, yeah like 90s a lot of 90s crust bands i don't know why because as you say there's millions of these things but these bands were at most hoping to sell like 5,000 records. It wasn't for profit. It wasn't in the same way that it would be now for a band to kind of put out a record. And, you know, but I've, I've definitely had that same thought about political songs, like writing about someone else's pain in a song now where I'm expecting someone to buy this song. Like every time someone listens to it now, you have to, you know, you, you, you essentially pay every time you click on a stream or something. So the idea of trying to tie uh, some sort of commercial success to someone's pain is is something that I find I'm finding like really difficult 
to deal with. And, you know, like obviously they're political bands and bands can write about whatever they want to write. But I just think as like myself, this is something that I've been kind of like wrestling with lately. And when it comes to writing songs, like I don't want to, it's not my right to take someone else's pain and, you know, create art out of it. Like that's debatable, but then to expect someone to pay me for it, it's, it's like, that's, that's something that I'm having a hard time reconciling with. Well, that's interesting because, um, the, uh, like uh, 1960s into the 70s and of course punk in the 80s had lots of songs like that mm-hmm. and you're saying that um, the ch- switch to streaming where everything costs money when you listen I mean I'm just repeating what you said is it has changed that fundamentally in terms of what those songs are and I think that's a really interesting point because you know i am i guess child of hippies so the first thing i think about are bob dylan protest songs mm-hmm. and uh because that was really i don't th- i wouldn't he would have i think been very successful regardless but you know those songs uh were performed sometimes for at at, at marches at yep. by him you know, to the crowds that were sometimes risking their their safety often. Um, so, so yes, I think that puts it in a different category. And also, um, I was thinking recently about, you know, not really hearing these vital songs along those lines um, in many years. And, and I wonder if that's a problem. Well, like, you know, like, uh, a song like Hurricane, you know, um, about Reuben Carter, like that actually played a role in his fight for justice, you know. Right. But at the same time, Bob Dylan definitely made money and until he sold his catalog, which is now making money for someone else, continued to make money off that song. You know, like it wasn't like that was all being donated necessarily to Hurricane, all the royalties. Maybe maybe he was donating portions of it to Reuben Carter, I hope, but uh, who knows. But it just becomes like a point where it, 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 you know, and especially now if you're, but like back then, this is something I'm just fleshing out of my mind as we're talking. So it's very convoluted. But back then when he was doing that, that was drawing people's attention to it. Now, if you were to do, if someone like a Bob Dylan was to write a song like that and to take the money themselves, it's the spread of information has changed so much and the idea of what it is to be a musician and the way we're paid for things now i just feel like it would mean something very different like that's part of part of that side of things has changed where you're not we yeah like i gotta i gotta think about this a little bit more because it is something that i'm i definitely have uh i mean this is a very interesting thing to me and of course what you're saying is 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 absolutely true i mean we're talking about bob dylan's catalog it's like has he made more money off only upon in their game than like Medgar Evers' family has. Oh, I'm sure. You know, like. And then the question is, you know, does that song exist as a way to make Medgar Evers, Medgar, Medgar Evers, oh my God, money, mm. uh, or to make or to honor him? And if is it honoring him and his move? You know, his place in that movement, just to make a song about. It's very. It's 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 interesting, and I would not be surprised if there was discussion about at the time and I'd be really interested to see what that might have looked like 
Yeah, I'd love to see it too because, like, it's one thing if you do a benefit, you know, and then that's where the money goes. You know, we've had this discussion and fucked up recently about songs and just like the way you approach approach writing lyrics, you know, and um, I think it's it's something that as musicians, as certainly people with privilege in music, I think it's something to kind of always consider and be weary of. Like, at the end of the day, are you of any cause you put your band's name behind because at the end of the day, are you going to hinder what you're doing? Are you going to be the thing that like hurts what you're trying to do? Like, you know, I I feel bad for anyone that works in the position of fighting global poverty right now, or someone who's involved in like anti-poverty work and, and things like that around the world because of the collapse of that we organization and just it being such a shamble and it being such a scam and just all the detriment it's done for people that are actually trying to, to, to do real work and do real change. Right, and nonprofits in general because they're starting to get a very bad rap like Doctors Without Borders is, is having a lot of controversy right now. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, but this is a big issue too. It's just like uh, finding nuance, you know, and, 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 and trying to delineate so that people won't attack entire movements based on people who use them for profit or exploitation of any kind um, because that's commonly what happens. People go, well, these, this is, these people are hypocrites, so the whole thing is pointless. You know, yeah. that, that's like a common thing people say to dismiss causes or, or, or uh, views that they don't agree with. Um, well, speaking of fuck that, I can tell something. You're in band mode. No, dude, I'm not. We're we're done. What? You broke up? No, we didn't break up, but like Jonah went back to to uh England and uh we're back in hibernation for a while. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well oops. We had tour fell through and, and uh Jonah couldn't make it to Chicago. We got to play one show, but but uh you know, with Toronto, but everything else was kinda like oh, that was a little bit of the air coming out of the balloon for a sec. Yeah, so you were supposed to tour with the legendary Yep. Yep. I talked when I talked to Larry Livermore from Lookout Records, he credits them with uh Green Day success more than he credits Nirvana. He's why? like So why? He feels like Green Day and Nirvana started at the same time. I think maybe even Green Day started earlier? No, no, the same time. Yeah. And they were already going, Lookout Records was already going and he's like Faith No More's success brought attention to the Bay Area. It um, brought literal infrastructure to the Bay Area because they started Mortem Distribution, which is what everyone used for distribution in in like when the independent record thing started happening. He's like, our bands were already kind of getting some attention. Like Operation Ivy was already kind of like an underground phenomena. Like it, it was much more Faith No More success and Faith No More kind of like carving this independent path for people around the Bay Area than it was for Nirvana, who was kind of like contemporaries. I mean, that is so interesting in terms of what it brings up, because although it's, uh, you know, he's talking specifically about Green Day, I mean, Faith No More are an incredibly influential band. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, again, it's like one of those bands that would be great for you to sort of unpack member by member for interviews for Turned Out of Punk, because uh, their tentacles and tendrils go so far, you know, and just... Mike Patton alone, of course, but lots of other people involved, you know, have great stories and, and they kind of had that 
Parliament funk weirdness going on. Um, they had a virtuosity that almost put them into like a proggy dimension, you know. Yep. And they weren't the first kind of metal band to be like that, but uh, you know, they they were um, certainly one of the most successful and earlier practitioners of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's only after we announced that we were on that tour that I really realized like how many people around me they'd influenced. Like so many friends hit me up, like, holy shit, dude, like that's crazy. Um they're really like that band. Like and they they I think they blew up before Nirvana, right? Like they had a hit before Nirvana, before Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think a little bit. I think I don't know if a couple months. Well, no, I mean they they were doing music Oh, way before, yeah. Yeah, and I think that all that stuff they did with the old singer, R.I.P. Yeah. R.I.P. Guy, who I'm not naming because I, my brain is, is uh, not working. Yeah, I'm blanking on it too right now. I'm going to look it up. Um, you know, the, We Care A Lot is probably before. Epic was huge, right? Like, they had. Yeah, I just don't know if Epic was around the same time. You yeah. Know, like, if you're able to do a tour that's Faith No More, Metallica, and Guns N' Roses, and that's like pretty much when a little after Nevermind broke. I mean, you, they were probably already a bit yep. of success. And Epic, Epic was 90. It came out in January of 90, and, and Nirvana is 91, right? Well, Nevermind is. Nevermind. I mean, like when it actually happens for Nirvana. How did you feel about that milestone? What, Nirvana's anniversary? Nirvana's 30th anniversary of the release of Nevermind. Uh, you know, like it was, I, I wasn't really that hit by it when it came out the first time. Like it didn't, I didn't really get into it until a friend of mine, this is post Nirvana played me Sonic Youth. Um, I was much more team Guns N' Roses back then. Cause remember it was like, kind of like a weird beef. Yeah. I don't know. My friend Andrew was into both. Like I met Andrew from my bandmate in wrong hole and earlier the killer elite, uh, he had just gone to the Toronto show of Guns N' Roses, Faith No More, and uh, Metallica at, at the uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Or it had just been canceled because... No, it had been canceled because I had tickets to go to that. So he was supposed to go to that because of the riot. Yeah. Canceled because of the riot. But then right after that, like he made me tapes of several Nirvana releases. So he was into both. And then I was probably more into... Nirvana, then, but I was definitely also into Faith No More, but I wasn't really that into Metallica or Guns N' Roses. I mean, I was into Guns N' Roses because, like, you couldn't avoid Guns N' Roses. And I loved Metallica's singles. I guess I liked Metallica too. But, like, the Nirvana thing was just ever present for me for quite, quite some time. It's funny to me that, like, and Duff talks about this in his book, Duff McKagan from uh, Guns N' Roses, that uh, when the beef happened, he got called from uh, Kim from the Fastbacks and reamed out. Like, how? why are you fucking with this young group of kids, man? Like, that's some bullshit. Like, you know, and so it's funny that both bands come out of Seattle punk, you know, and, and are connected to it. And, like, Guns N' Roses also, Izzy Stradlin was an L.A. punk dude. So they're coming at punk from, like, two different places. Yeah, totally. And uh, actually, I've been, like, buying cassettes listen to slash resell later. yeah yeah i picked up lies and uh oh boy <laughs> oh boy well you know i uh the double shot of i used to love her and uh one, one in a million 
uh, at, on side B is just like, you know, because yeah. I've never really listened to One in a Million before just because I'm so, uh, I got, I got uh, blue-pilled <laughs> early Yeah. by Riot Girl and Punk to like, you know, not really want to listen to it. And that was probably why I wasn't that into Guns N' Roses. Because, um, you know, by the time I was 13 or 14, I was kind of like, you know, fully being uh, Dead Kennedy's guy. Oh, yeah. By the time I was 13 or 14, I was way out of it. But I was, uh, and, and, and by the time I, I remember hearing Lies, my brother got it and we were just listening to it and just like couldn't believe it, you know? And I think we had read about it in some unauthorized Guns N' Roses book before we heard it. But it was like, when you hear it, it's just, it's, it's still shocking. Like, it's like some of the most shocking language. Well, because I just don't really, it, like, I guess when I heard it, I thought it would be kind of like Mr. Brownstone or something. Or no, It's So Easy. Where, yeah. You know, It's So Easy has these sort of casually misogynist lyrics that um, they're not, like, tongue-in-cheek, but, like, they're, they're arguably occupying some kind of a my like uh, example of a mindset you mm -hmm. know in some kind of uh even if they're not condemning it you know like whereas one in a million sounds like a manifesto it's it's <laughs> yeah. still shocking when you like it's you like yeah like it's it's and you know they've obviously renounced it and like i'm sure very much regret writing that song now yeah. but it's wild to think how many times that thing got reissued and how many copies that thing sold and you know, uh, as happens with bands, I, you know, when you're in the middle of the lab coming up with things, I think that people's perspective is way different for what they can and can't do. Um, but it is amazing to think that the five guys were like, Axel, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, like it just, I would just imagine being Slash when he's like telling you these lyrics. Like, what the, I haven't read Slash's book. I'm sure he talks about it, but I just can't, I couldn't imagine like, being a, a racialized person in that situation and being like, my name's going to be attached to this piece of shit, you know? And it's just, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a really disturbing song when you like look back and there's also like, you know, they, uh, even at the time they were like, well, it's written as a character and we don't agree with what the character's saying. Like, I remember that being the defense of the time yeah. still it was being reissued, but uh, the, the, the same thing is like the kids that are hearing that buying this record at like some random rural mall record store and bringing that shit home and hearing guns and roses say it they don't have the benefit of knowing that this is ironic they don't have the benefit of knowing that this is like they're just hearing this as you're saying like a fucking manifesto my twisted way of viewing again it's so easy and like the part where you know it, it gets like really kind of it's like there seems like there's like self-loathing and nihilism in those lyrics and mm -hmm. Uh, you know, with everyone trying to please me, like it just—it's it, kind of about being decadent and like the numbness that that creates, or whatever. You know, like there to me are ways of viewing that as the sort of character or as like a message of some kind, even though everyone's just listening to it for fun and to rock or whatever. I, I, yeah, go on. Sorry, I have to keep talking about it. One in a no, no. I was—I was going to say. I think. Uh... I think sadly it's it's uh one of those things where the misogyny is not as shocking because it is so much more 
prevalent in I, I even mean, mainstream I, music? I, I think that, yeah, that's true. And it's like, I'm actually only saying the other stuff with the idea that that is just like almost a given. You yeah, know? yeah. Unfortunately. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that's why, like, I think the misogyny, because, yeah, the misogyny of that is fucking heavy. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it, it doesn't feel as shocking to hear someone in a song sadly say something horribly misogynist because there are still chart topping songs that have, you know, misogynist lyrics. Like that is a, a horrible convention of music. And you can see how that reaffirms, you know, like a, a rape culture and misogyny culture. Also, that was at a time period where from all genres, the, the floodgates were open to like, uh, like vulgar, vulgar yeah. in general, but also like mis making misogyny like explicitly, explicitly vulgar. So it was just one of many expressions of that. Like, whereas one in a million is like, you, you know, you're not going to find a ton outside of maybe be interested in listening to some country music from that time. <laughs> I don't even think you'd have mainstream countries saying shit like that back then. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm oblivious to some like really horrific record, but that thing charted like for years, that thing charted. Like that's that, the, the that, scariest part. Is that a single one in a billion? No, I don't like it. it Cause the whole thing's a single, right? Like it's an EP. So I don't know. Patience was the, the single off that thing that they did a video for and stuff like that. They might've done a video for I used to love her too. Um, I think they did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, so it's, it's kind of like everything, I guess, was a single off that thing. That's the first record too, right? Like, I think it's the first record plus some live tracks or yeah, I don't know. I mean, make it up. I don't know, but it's, uh, yeah, like it, it is definitely, uh, 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 not a great period in rock music to look back upon on a sunnier note in terms of cassettes, uh, something that I'm realizing from thrifting that is like this entire market that's now starting to interest me is pirate labels that would that would do bootlegs of popular albums because I bought a couple of tapes on a label called Thompson T-H-O-M-S-U-N uh -huh. and I got a Skid Row self-titled and uh, Vanilla Ice to the Extreme which had like the Vanilla Ice trading card in there and Thompson was a Dubai based bootleg label yeah you know it well, I've, I've followed this because there's a couple punk records that have been done on some of these Middle Eastern I noticed uh, labels. Gods. I was looking at and they, they put out punk, they put out like some really weird hip hop, like Mellow Man Ace, like you wouldn't expect a Mellow Man Ace. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm not surprised they did punk stuff too. And, uh, you know, I had another bootleg label. I got a Russian bootleg label called like gorski or something that did you know russian music but also random other stuff and i just think that there must be collectors of, of these european and worldwide bootleg well bootlegs are are a very interesting game now because when discogs banned the sale of them and ebay banned the sale of them yeah it made it even more it, well i think it made them actually that's what increased the value of all the bootlegs because now it's like people freak out trying to get this stuff because you can't get this stuff. And also people realize the quantities of these things were pressed in much lower numbers at times too. Right? Like it makes sense. Cause one of the most expensive, valuable versions of the sex pistols record is uh, a tie bootleg 
of I think it's God Save the Queen and maybe the jams on the flip or some of it. Maybe there's a jam one that someone else is on the flip. It's, it's I remember there's like a weird split, but that thing goes for like thousands and thousands of dollars because there's not many of them. Like I spent most of the time when I uh, was lucky enough to go there on a vacation one time, uh, looking trying to find record stores to try and even see if I could find any type bootlegs and couldn't find one. Save my life. Bangkok. Pardon me. Bangkok, you're saying. In Bangkok, yeah. I went to every market, you know, and just scoured the markets. Oh, you um, go to Jack Jetta. Market. Pardon me. Jack Jack Jetta. Jack Jetta. Is that the night market? Uh, it's not the night market. It's the gigantic uh, uh, day market. Oh yeah, definitely then. Free to go, I think, and there's like a little turnstile, and they've got like just all the craziest shirts you've ever seen in your life. Thailand is where I saw the coolest t-shirts I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I couldn't believe them, you know, and, and I love a good t-shirt and uh, that place was heaven. I also bought a lot of cool DIY toys that like people were like, like, like fabric toys that people were making and stuff like. So cool. Yeah. I had a, I had a really great time there. I would love to, I would love a chance to go back. I don't think I'll ever get a chance, but. To, I mean, I was there for like two days, you know, like I, I, I was uh, really just there for work and then had like a couple of days where I could check it out. And um, I mean, it's one of those places where it's North American, it's like male with a mustache. Uh, to say I just went to Thailand is like basically uh, embarrassing, but honestly, you might want to cut that out. <laughs> I'm going to cut out the thing where I accused Doom of uh, <laughs> Yeah, kind of my my awkward laughter that I my the way I deal with awkward situations and also cut out the <laughs> that, that comment right My there. question, why are you wearing a landlord's fucking shirt? Oh, the wave shirt? Yeah, that guy's a fucking slum landlord. Well, I don't know if it's a slum. He's a landlord, that's for sure. You can't argue that. But I don't know. The place looks pretty uh, expensive now. I think it's more like a gentrifying landlord would be a better way of putting it. I'll tell you what. Put it in the garbage. I'm <laughs> only saying all this because I can cut it out now. Cause I... Yeah, exactly. Now you know you're editing. Now we're going to get real loose. But something that I really liked, that I, I mean, this happened during the MySpace days, but it was when a person in Indonesia wrote me and was like, Yeah bootlegged your stuff on tape and it rules and i made tapes and i'm selling them of your stuff yeah yeah no i got i got anytime i could find one i'd buy it you know like one of my biggest regrets is for some reason i think it's because i was so sick at the show because i ate a beat have you ever heard do you ever do a beetle nut is that a nut with a beetle inside no it's like it's i think it's two nuts put together but it's basically like an amphetamine that uh you chew it's illegal in a lot of places E-T-E-L? I guess betel nut, betel nut. Oh, I, I was, um, you spit out the stuff and it comes out bright red. Crazy. And in, in, uh, in Taiwan, like people chew them. Like someone was like, Oh, this is like our gum here. When they introduced it to me, it wasn't until after I was chewing it and accidentally swallowing all this liquid liquid that someone was like, eh, it's more like kind of like a light amphetamine. <laughs> and so we got on stage and I was like, I'd eaten all this food that day. Cause the food there is incredible. And we're playing in a very sort of like, you know, remind me of going to Japan and the style of live rooms that they have there. So very nice, like nice gear. And I run over to the person that's doing the monitor and she's like, yes, in the middle of the set. And I'm like, do you have a pail, a bucket? 
and she hands me like a little tiny bucket. I'm like, bigger, bigger. She's like, no, no. And I just like, like turn away from her and back on the stage and just start vomiting uncontrollably because of this beetle nut. So that night after the show, we're hanging out there and they have a little record store and they had a copy of a fucked up record for Taiwan. And I, I don't know what, an idiot, I didn't buy it. Like, I was just like, ah, she just bought it. Why did I buy that? Yeah, that's like when you were telling me that, I was like, why didn't I write that guy back and said, would you be able to mail this to me? Yeah, like, I will pay it. I will pay for this thing. Like, a Russian dude did the best thing for me where he took, uh, you know, Russia. Yeah. Experiences too. They've like, there are, there's like a small core of people in Russia who are like, we love your bands. Yeah. And one of them makes these awesome uh, hand-stitched, kind of cross-stitch patches for bands where he remixes a punk band logo uh, with to, into like a video game style. Okay. Patch. So oh, he, I saw this when you posted this. I remember this now. He's like, what video game character do you like? I was like, I don't know, uh, Bomberman? So they made like Blown to Completion, our last album, but it was like Bomberman with a bomb. And it's a big and, uh, <coughs> That's awesome. He nailed me that. And, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know why. I mean, probably because I just was like, I don't know if a punk in Indonesia has mailing money. Probably well, because Indonesia, it turns out, is giant and yeah. civilized. And like, again, it's like the, the beauty of traveling uh, as a band is you realize the world is so much larger and and uh, like everywhere is as important as where you're from yeah yeah and everyone has at the end of the day everyone's got the same struggle well not the same struggles but i mean everyone's got the same hopes and desires like that's the one thing i've kind of learned like maybe not the same means definitely not the same means and not the same paths to achieving them and not the same uh ambitions of achieving them maybe getting close to saying not the same anything <laughs> well no but it's but it's very much like everyone wants love and to be loved yeah and a everyone lot of wants they want security. to be happy and comfortable yeah health them. health yeah. and security for their family like I, I found like i'll be in a place where i don't know the people you know and at all and there's no similar language between what we're doing but i'll be able to like it was doing the wrestling TV show. Everywhere I went, I'd be able to talk to people about wrestling because we all loved wrestling and we all love wrestling in kind of the same way, you know? And it was interesting to like sit down and talk to people about this one thing that we have, you know, and like in addition to these other things I'm talking about, these basic needs that we all have, but we all shared this love of this one thing. And we could talk about with, with, you know, just throwing out names and names of moves and famous matches and things like that and, and communicate that way. You know, I think that that's the one thing about video game culture that I'd love to see a bit more is, you know, video game culture at some point became very, like, us, them on some mm -hmm. level. And it would be cool to kind of take it back to one where, like, people are not like, oh, you're an SJW, you know, and, and like this kind of thing, because it's true, like, hobbies and stuff even with punk rock even as like a politically active band you will have guys in like you know who are into like gender-headed you know the uh, caveman metal who will come to your shows if they like how your guitar sounds you know? yeah yeah 
and uh and and it's like and i've seen people soften up over years just from that like knowing me or knowing them you know like i don't know what can i say i i, I think it's um yeah it's like that's the, the the one of the best things about uh subculture is that it becomes almost like religion and i think that's that's the thing we people are failing to understand about not people i shouldn't say but some people are failing to understand about all these uh q people and all these anti-vax type people which i'm not at all in line with ideologically i'll put that out first and foremost but they're finding that community too and they're finding they're able to relate to people and reach out to people and discuss this stuff and i think that's the thing that it almost becomes like uh in place of religion for us you know and for me it's like wrestling and punk for you it's like punk and rock music comedy and, and video games but these things are like what other people fill these voids with spirituality we fill these voids with uh hobbies did you listen to music today i i, I agree with you by the way I yeah think that's true and i think the only problem with something like q or, or anti-vax stuff oh there's a lot of problems with it i'm not saying there's any the only problem or like <laughs> the, the 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 major problem one of the major problems i see is just you know, it's it's all reactive. Um, the, com the communities aren't saying, "Oh, is there a fan translation of Shining Force Three volume?" But they are doing that. They are. They're like, "Does have you watched that HBO Q documentary?" I did. Yeah, dude. Okay. That, then when they're breaking down how they all translate it, and they all were on that Reddit, like subreddit of a subreddit, or like eventually 4chan or 8chan or whatever bullshit, and they're all like breaking down these. Oh. Yeah, edicts yeah, and sure. sharing like it's it's firing so the same synapses that i know they're doing they're they're firing the same synapses but the end result is that they're finding they're telling themselves that hillary clinton is yes. uh, you yeah. know in a bathhouse commanding a bunch of uh you know cat human hybrids to uh stack the to murder all the uh conservative judges you know and and, and like uh whereas wrestling people and video game people well that that did creep into video games like i was saying with the whole gamergate thing mm -hmm. and i know it's i'm sure it's crept into wrestling because of how sanitized people view wwe but uh I it's just, still in wrestling it's, it's something that people are actively still trying to like deal with and it's it's something that's happening as we speak in wrestling i just wish we could get more into the fun of all of this like i wish they could just be like okay we translated what a crazy thing this is saying well back to my job and family i love rather than i'm gonna go to the pizza shop now and check this out with my gun you know it, it's uh it's it's just i i wish almost sometimes that we could view more things as pure fantasy and entertainment if that but that's like how people i think view you know it's like religion like how everyone at one point would probably have different relationships to it there's fanatics and people like who who adhere to doctrines in a in a very direct way and and want to impose that on other people and there are other people that are just like yeah this is my thing you know i'm just going to do my thing um you know i think the problem with the q thing is it's now just well no, once again a lot of problems with it <laughs> a lot of problems but one of the problems is the fact that these people view it as a moral imperative like they're they're like the kids that took dnd too far they're the kids that thought D&D &D was real and then they would kill someone in real life right? because right. the game told them to do it. Or like, you know, would listen to a song and like act out the song because the song told them to do it. Like these there are a lot of those were 
you know, in terms of the imp the influence of those things, I think that a lot of those were like exaggerated to demonize these, yeah. these things. But but I think that that point is, is is true. It's like a real version of that, and because of uh, the fact it's real, it doesn't it like it's something that actually exists. It's generally not like one example of a person doing something. It's actually an example of a movement creating a uh, atmosphere that can enable multiple uh, confrontations and and uh, decisions and things like that January 6th thing and, and justification after justification. Um, you know, like I know people, I've seen people who've gone down this rabbit hole on Instagram and uh, it's so fascinating to me how with every, I, I hadn't been that with people I know that privy to watching someone after one thing is disproven, you know, moving on to the next thing. Yeah. That's disproven. Like just because they go, Oh, well this, this is not looking good for Joe Biden. They're going to recount in this County. And then they do the recount and nothing would happen. And then the next week they'd be like, this is not looking good for Joe Biden. They're going to do a recount here. You know, and it's like, when are you going to realize that it's looking fine for Joe Biden? Because <laughs> you know? these these people are like, uh, it was like a religion for them, right? Like it gives them faith, it gives them hope. You know, it gives them something to get them through the day every day. The problem is we've had like a breakdown in these sort of traditional structures that were obviously oppressive, but at the same time, like structured lives for people. Like you know, like the hope that there was this afterlife that you will go to by being a good person and doing all your work. And obviously, there were people that abused that at every turn. Um, but now it's like that's gone and been supplanted with all, you know, like whatever we need to motivate us to get through the day. It's amazing, like not to keep bringing it back to wrestling, but going to Japan and talking to, you know, people about why they liked watching deathmatch wrestling, like deathmatch wrestling in America. Well, now it's changing, but like for the longest time, it appealed to a very certain, a very, you know, a certain type of fan for the most part. But in Japan, I'll call them the Philadelphia people. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In in Japan, it appealed to all types of people. And, you know, it obviously appealed to not obviously, but it appealed to predominantly male, a male audience very much in a in in, you know, as you described the Philadelphia people. But like for the deathmatch fans, which, you know, there's it happened through lots of territories for it, but it would generally be dudes in the audience. But in Japan, it's it's all over the map in terms of gender and in terms of what people do. I met office workers, you know, and in just talking to these people that are going to these matches, watching people like stab each other with scissors, you know, like just gnarly shit, like the like really horrifying, ghastly stuff. Like, why do you like coming here? Little kids, too. And uh, the office worker guy that I talked to in the suit was like, it motivates me to get through the day the next day. Like seeing them in the ring, seeing them suffer and triumph like this uh, makes me want to get through my next day at work. That's very interesting. I've always felt like Japan seems like they have um, a slight disconnect between those um, religion style obsessions and their day to day lives. Whereas in the US, it seems like, you know, the same attitude that you're taking to your online uh, forum is the same attitude you're presenting on your front lawn is the same attitude you're presenting if you own a business at your business 
you know, it's where mm-hmm. it's Japan. But then again, you know, I've I've heard a lot of things about, uh, you know, people in Japan having uh, issues with presidents as well. So. Well, I mean, I mean, not to stereotype a whole country, but also I think in Japan, it's just it's like a lot and i and i say this because i i want to live there like i had the i i could i didn't smoke weed when i was there at all you know like i i i lived incredibly positively when i was there ate incredibly well but i think everyone's just you know the idea of p- being more private is something that's important and this isn't everyone like there's obviously some very loud people and very open people with of who course. they are but yeah, like generalizing is a thing but we're but it is as they say like a, a slight monoculture yeah. It, it, well, it, and not even necessarily a monoculture. I think it's like there's just it's just like a different wide ranging of cultures, you know, that's going on there. And you just don't necessarily openly say what your subculture is to people um, until later on, you know, when you're actually participating in the subculture. There's like office workers that, you know, will, will go to these crazy bloody deathmatch wrestling shows and then go back to work the next day. There's or people going to like hardcore shows you know or or things like that like there's definitely a like vibrant subcultures but like the way you participate them is different and you don't flag wave it as much as as you do i think in in a lot of north american subcultures before i forget i want to let you know that i actually saw the uh most recent aew pay-per-view most of it yeah Uh, i'd never seen aew before and i think it's pretty cool they're doing mm-hmm. a pretty good type of wrestling there. I respect, yep. You know. Yep. Shout out to, yeah, I got a lot of friends there actually. It's like, it's a, it's, it's really cool that there is that alternative to, um, to WWE and what they have too. I got a lot of friends at WWE too that I like, I think that what they're doing is like really awesome. Like the stuff that MVP is doing, man, like MVP's comeback and what he's doing on TV well, right now he's out with an injury, but like, it's been amazing to watch, but at the same time, like to have like a new company emerge with this new energy and to have them sign all these guys, like it's, it's very exciting. I can see why everyone's very excited by what's happening right now in wrestling. I liked the progress of the matches. I liked the moves. I was like, this is cool. This kind of feels like when I was uh, into wrestling more. So, well, and, and I don't think Brian Danielson wrestled on that, right? Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson's right now. He's called. He might wrestle the next night against Kenny Omega, but it, that was like one of the great wrestling matches. Like he's on a different level in terms of being a artist when it comes to pro wrestling. Yeah, I uh, I'm definitely gonna keep an eye out for for that stuff. I was into it, and you know, um, and yeah, just I know you've got the kids coming. Well, they're gonna be home in about ten minutes. We got ten minutes to wrap up. <laughs> uh, and that, so you you were gonna do music. And then that got fucking kiboshed. And then how was your show the other day? It was fun. Jumping on Long Winter, which is uh, an effed up, one of the original projects of effed up that sort of blossomed into a whole thing. Yep. And uh, I don't think anyone from Fucked Up is actually directly involved anymore. I think maybe Josh is on the board. Exactly. In some capacity. It started and it was mostly, was it Josh and Mike? When it, the very, very first one, we were all heavily involved with. Um, me being the least because that's just how I tend to roll with things. But um, uh, I did like a, 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 I did an interview thing with Sam Sutherland and Liz Worth about their books. Right. Um, maybe Don Pyle too. I'm trying to remember that, like who was all on stage with me. That thing. It was I was very stoned. Um, and 
then Jonah ran a lot of the sound that night. Sandy did most of the, like a lot of the back end stuff for everything. And Josh and Mike kind of like really, you know, organized this thing. And as it kind of went on, we all drifted away for various reasons. Me very, very early on. So I, I really have no claim to being involved in the inception of it. Just... It became an important sort of thing to the point where it was yeah. happening throughout a year. A couple yeah. times or more. There was one where it was once, once, I guess it's called long winter. So it's once a month during the winter. Yeah. And, uh, or it was. And, and so, yeah, like, uh, so you guys just said, look, long winter, we're going to use our seniority. Here. <laughs> I think Mike walked by the outdoor stage. Greg Benedetto was looking for a venue. We had another venue fall through on us that we were supposed to, we were going to do like our own show at. And they were like, no, we don't want that happening here like that too many people for what, what you guys you know are going to be doing there and uh we wanted we had to make sure it was an outdoor thing you know we didn't want to do some like super limited seating thing because people couldn't come mm-hmm. um and so mike was walking by long winter on dundas west where they had set up across from the garrison because that's where they were running shows right. and texted the sound guy greg benedetto was like you should just text the sound guy and who Mike knows and texted him and was like, Hey, can we jump on? And they were like, absolutely. So yeah, we jumped on. And now how did it feel? How was it? Oh, really cool, man. Like getting out there again. Like I've, I've cheated a little bit. Like I, I went out with uh dancer junior had a, a summer camp. Yeah. What was going on there? I saw pictures. You're up there. You're singing with John Brandon. Yeah, dude. Yeah, Michael Imperioli. Chris yeah, dude. Uh, but, and spy Michael Imperioli, everyone knows who he is. He's a writer. He's a musician. He's play an actor. He's amazing. He's a meditator. He, uh, you're suddenly hanging out with him. I'm jealous. Guy won't give me the time of day. <laughs> well, I don't normally, know because I don't know him. But well, I, I don't. I, I only know him. I guess I did the podcast with he, him. He did respond to uh, one of my questions in a meditation Zoom. So he'll respond. He'll give me the time of day. I'm sure if I'd said, Michael, what's the time of day? <laughs> yeah he is you know what he's like man he's like without a doubt the most earnest real dude uh in in uh in in pop culture like when you're talking to him he is like the you're, you're the only person in the world like he is so focused on that moment and that present thing and it's it's almost disarming, you know, like going up, talking to him after he did his book reading. He had a great book reading with his son and his bandmate playing instrumentation for this book that he wrote, which is sort of this fictional account of this kid meeting Lou Reed um, in sort of the Lou Reed shooting up meth period um, and just uh, hitting it off with him. And, and Like 2017 Lou Reed or something? No, no, no. Like 1977 Lou Reed. Wasn't after he died? Sure? <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. <laughs> he became, and also Michael's like friends with Lou Reed and has all these like Lou Reed stories and interactions with him from over the years, right? Because well, you guys were on the the last few years of his life, you were on his like Spotify history or whatever, right? Like, did yeah, that's so cool. That, that's so weird. I still don't. That's one of those things that doesn't really compute, you know. And at the time, I think. uh anxiety or insecurity made me even just pass it off as being like, that's probably just some fucking intern writing that list for him and just like, wouldn't let myself have that moment instead of being like, yo, I should find a way to reach out to him and just like, you know, obviously it'll be a disaster, but like, just see if I can have this conversation with him, you know? And I will always kind of regret that, 
you know, because I think there's a lot of things that we keep ourselves from in life because of various reasons that we look back upon and, you know, but I think that's what makes us appreciate the things we don't hold ourselves back from. I hear you. There was a political commenter named Michael Brooks who was always talking about old school rap on the majority report that he worked on. And I was just like, I should reach out to him and just see if he wants to talk about rap on my podcast. <laughs> rap about rap. That would have been the same thing. And then, uh, not to get heavy, but then he died suddenly. Oh, man. Well, that's sorry to hear that. But yeah, uh, Imperioli, Brandon, Mascus, and Abraham. Yeah, it was it was wild, man. It was like, it was this whole, uh, it was this very sort of surreal thing where I did the one a couple years ago and it was at that time it was um Kevin Shields, right. Fred Armisen and uh myself and then just Dinosaur Jr. That's still pretty wild. It was awesome. That one was great. Um but this year was just it was like on a different level. Like it was just uh it was just I don't know cuz maybe cuz I'd been at home for so long but also like last time there were, it was like a different kind of audience. This time it was just like the hardest of hardcore, um, um, like Dino Jr. fans. They were just down to like hang and talk and just nerd out. And it was like, there weren't a lot of people there. So you never felt awkward about like being too close to each other, you know, and stuff like that. Like you'd always spread out. Like even though the show was indoors, there was a well within six feet between everyone. But I got to go up and, yeah, perform with first day. John's like, well, the first day was Dinosaur Jr. Then the second day, Negative Approach was going to play. And John came up to me. He's like, you want to sing with N.A.? What do you think? You want to sing with N.A.? Yeah. <laughs> check it out. He doesn't say check it out that much. That's a very much overplayed. Oh, I, listened to, I listened to the podcast yeah. uh, you did with him, which was amazing. And, <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, if you're listening now and you don't know anything about John Brannon, uh, go check out. I'm going to go on a limb and say, go check out Laughing Hyena's Life of Crime. Dude, they, they, he's, he's done it four times, you know, like legitimately done it four times where he has four amazing bands in different kind of like sonic spheres of punk rock and roll where he did the static record, which has just been reissued, which dude, that thing I've, I longed to hear that for so long. I remember hearing about this thing existing. Right. And it yeah, lives up to the hype. On about oh. that to, to John, and and he is really one of those great mixtures of someone who seems like barely cognizant of his uh, yeah output, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know like he's just doing it. So in terms of thinking too hard about his contribution and whatnot, is not happening as much and yet at the same time he is absolutely aware of how much he cares about uh music songwriting vocal like doing vocals and, vocals yeah uh, and 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 uh and you know so so that's such a and he's very much like kind of like a like a old school rock guy at the same time you know yeah so he, he he's for what we do like aggressive vocals in a band he is he is the the high watermark of someone who looks at it as an art form and takes it to a different place. So you can watch his voice develop. So you're, like you're saying, life of crime. He's like in easy action. His voice is on like the highest point. Like I think his voice gets better 
throughout because he gets more control over this thing you know i was talking about the song evacuate and i'm like why did you sing it that way he's like oh, i hate that song man yeah, and i'm like yeah. and i'm like oh yeah and he's like yeah man but, then, but this is when we were talking not on the podcast this is like at dinosaur junior summer camp and i'm just like chatting with and he's like yeah like I, and i'm like so, but, so why'd you do that voice like that he's like just have another arrow in the quiver or something something like that and i'm or like another tool in the toolbox or something it's like maybe it was another tool in the toolbox but whatever he said it was like yeah fuck yeah for aggressive vocals oh and then i i buried the lead on it you know who else was there tim meadows i love tim meadows dude he's the coolest biggest dancer junior fan biggest like just watched him and then uh i interviewed jason and darcy uh from bob mold band splits you know best dude and jason was saying that he did like a painting project one time at tim meadows apartment and that tim meadows has the coolest record collection with like chris bell records and shit that's so amazing it's so cool and uh yeah you had billy bragg on the podcast recently too and the only reason i'm bringing that up is because i have always had a bit of a uh blind spot towards billy bragg like i've always really respected his uh ethics uh, output deal uh and music and but i didn't own anything and then i picked up a cassette that's like a live show and an ep Okay. One cassette. Uh, and I was I listened to it yesterday, the day before, and I was just like, damn, I really like this. Like, yeah. I, I like that earlier work. I was just like, this is, this is like the type of music I'm, I'm into now. You know? So I don't yeah. know if you, I, I have a theory about aging into stuff. I think I might have aged into Billy Bragg the same way I aged into Warren Zevon. You know? I find I age into like certain artists, but it's only weirdly one record. You know, there's like one record. Like I like, I respect them all for their all their output, but like, um, there's always like one record by these artists that now I'm like really into. Did you listen to any music today? Yeah. What did you listen to? What do I got over here? Uh, Big Hits of America, Volume Three. <coughs> um, a single on Slumberland that Mike and Jonah put out. Whoa um and uh slumber oh that 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 mystery machine thing that mike and jonah and riley did together what did they wasn't there a band called mystery machine years ago from moncton i think so maybe this, i'm trying to remember is this called mystery machine i don't know I, I, it's riley on vocals and mike and jonah on everything else kind of a tearjerker riley from power trip yeah it's weird it's definitely i didn't really uh listen to it too much when it came out i didn't really hear it and then riley passed away and i kind of it was a weird moment where i couldn't really listen to them on vocals you know without sure, getting yeah. you know um but then this mike gave me a copy of this 12 inch of the show and i was uh um yeah it's really cool it's very it's weird to hear it now and like be like fuck i, I can't talk to him about it like i find that with everyone that passes away there's like there's always this moment that kind of happens where there'll be something that i'll, I'll like pick up from something they did or you know, and I'll just like want to be like, fuck, I want to reach out and talk to him about this. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that doesn't happen. You know, yeah. Lauren's uncle passed away and he was like a, uh, a really respected science fiction writer, um, Nathaniel's father. And uh, he wrote the episode. He wrote this story called Distant Signals, a okay. short story that was adapted into. I want to say not Twilight Zone, maybe it's a 
um, outer limits, perhaps. Maybe it's an outer, an outer, not outer limits. It's like one of the American ones, but like I can't remember which one. Ray Bradbury presents. Was Maybe that? it was Ray Bradbury presents. It was one of those sorts of things. It was it was adapted into, but then ultimately adapted into a Futurama episode. Yeah, it was very sudden. It was just before COVID. He passed away, and and but like I I you know finally read the actual story that this thing. Like I knew that it was a Futurama episode, but like after he passed away, I was uh i got a couple copies of his books and so i finally read the story and i was like ah shit like now that i finally read i wish i had i can't believe i didn't read it earlier i mean Damien, i agree with you i know exactly what you're talking about in fact one of my big uh i don't know what you'd call it like neuroses uh and i view it as a bit on my part like am i being selfish when someone dies uh especially of toronto like a lot of my parents circle of friends we're part of an art and literature history in Toronto that I'm wor- and music that I'm worried will be lost because as a city, as you see with our architecture, it is like, it's, you know, some, it just, if it's gone, sometimes it just is lost to the dustbin of history, unless you write, an, uh, if you're archiving it or writing it, my dad, my dad's, collection of books and magazines i've been going through it you would lose your mind if you looked at this stuff there's like uh, uh chris callahan and matt finner have a uh, small press book sell reset seller now called midnight mass books yeah uh, i let them check it out dude file magazine which is the general idea yep. one um and then there's like small press poetry prints from like 1965 and onwards like there's also stuff like Evergreen Review, Paris Review, but a lot of the Toronto stuff is what's interesting the most. Yep. Interesting me the most, and I don't know what to do with it practically. You know, and and I'm in a lucky position where, well, I have this physically. I mean, there so there is some, but I wish you were here to be like, here's some content. I mean, for a variety of reasons, but also he could he'd be like able to tell me some backstory to this you know yeah no there's definitely uh well first of all this is what you should be doing for your fucking podcast man is documenting this stuff and and putting up this history because this is the history that that's why i started doing turn into punk is because i uh i i, I remember dave brocky passed away and i was like i think i'm i'm 90 sure this is how it went down and I was like, fuck, I've been talking about doing this podcast forever. I I would love to have interviewed him. And so I just went as like, turned out a punk, let's go. And I started this podcast and, and it's really become like there's stuff that I did at the time, which I never had the morbid forethought to think, oh, shit, I'm going to look back upon this when this person's gone. Because you don't expect to lose people, you know, but there's some things like the episode with my mom. You know, like I treasure that shit so much that I have just that to go back to or that the kids can listen to, you know, or like other friends that have passed away that I just have this conversation with them where I, I, I force them to sit down for an hour plus with me and I could just ask them like, and granted, it's just about bullshit like music, but at the same time, music is so important to us. And I think our journey in music, especially our generation and the generations before us, I think it's changing now with kids, um, but uh, it's so important to us that, you know, I just I'm just glad I had these these moments with some people, you know, and, and 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 also just as a historical document, too, because there's some bands that fuck like, um, you know, getting to talk to Freddie 
from the vile tones. Like, you know, obviously the vile tones are celebrated on a certain level, but at the same time, they're they're not celebrated in the way they could be or should be. So yeah, I think it's because they had a guy named Nazi Dog in it. Probably a mistake. Uh, we're not really li- in an era where Nazi Dog is someone people want to necessarily. But like, I agree with you. That- no, you know who's the worst for that? Unfortunately, the, the most tragically is Pure Hell. You know, they uh, they were one of the they were a all African American punk band from New York, like very much a, like a first wave or so kind of like <clears throat> if you want to be technical about it, I guess. <clears throat> I think their first record comes out in 78, but still, like, I think they were playing on the scene before that. They actually backed up Sid Vicious when Sid Vicious was playing in New York for a while. Uh, but every photo you find of them is they're rocking some wild swastika <laughs> gear. Yeah, definitely and, the whole, like, we'll all wear swastikas element of, like, punk. Yeah. But, uh, again, but <laughs> there's a lot of context that explains some of it. And some of it. Then there's a lot of context that still does not explain why, like, Lemmy or Johnny Ramone were, like, super into it. Or was it Didi? I feel like it was Johnny. Uh, no, Didi. Yeah. Didi. Johnny, Johnny, you know, according to Infamy, uh, was like a, had a KKK membership card. Right, the, it was like a John Birch Society. Guy. Yeah, but, but whereas... Legend. Yeah, whereas Didi um, is a, uh, was like, and I think Didi even talks about this in Treat Me Like Dirt. Uh, was a a Nazi regalia collector. Right, which also the Stooges, uh, Ron. Ron Ashen, sadly, also had that kind of... But also, like, they're not alone. There's a, you know, Lemmy from Motorhead. Yeah, yeah. uh, Frank Sinatra was a notoriously big collector of this stuff. A lot of of soldiers that came back from the war. The shadow of the Second World War over a British person like Lemmy, over a Jewish people, I believe Dee Dee may have been Jewish, uh, uh, I think he's part, maybe, but he's definitely part German. Yeah. yeah okay. But he grew up like, he, he talks about, I think, and once again, I think I'm 90% sure this isn't Please Kill Me, about like walking around after World War II and finding like some of this shit just in bombed out buildings and finding this shit just abandoned and like collecting it, starting his collection that way. And that's where the interest came from um, for him. And it's like, yeah, like once again, this is a collection that ages very horribly and a type of uh, a obsession that ages very poorly. But um, there are sadly a few punk people that thought that they could reclaim the swastika or subvert the swastika or somehow get some sort of other use out of the swastika other than as a symbol of historical genocide. And I think these are the things that people are learning as time goes on. You know, words have meaning and symbols have meaning and, you know, there's not necessarily a free interplay of sign and signifier. Well, you are inspiring me to, at the very least, seek out people who I have an interest in and I've heard are in ill health to talk to. Well, I don't, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't be an imposition on them, Nick, as they're in ill health, as you're saying, but I would definitely say talk, talk to everyone, you know? have those conversations with everyone. Like it's, it's, we have this technology now. I remember my grandmother dying of cancer and I remember like being like, fuck, my brother has a dictaphone. I should next time I'm in Montreal, just talk to her for like two hours and just like talk to her about everything in her life. And I didn't do it. And, and yeah, but like weirdly through this podcast and in people I've interviewed, I've, I've wound up doing that with people where I'm not, 
you know, like I want to, I'm not like, you know, like, oh, wow, they passed away. I've, I've got this thing, you know, it's not like that at all, but it's also at the same time, like a, a thing I can go back and listen to. I saved the message for my mom. Like one of the last phone messages That's she right. left me. Lucky, yeah. And, uh, and just like, you know, yeah, once in a while when I want to really rip my heart out, I'll listen to it, but just, we just, I just, I feel very fortunate about that. We have this technology to kind uh, of well, do the stuff, you know, be my dad being a writer, uh, and a poet, you know, I guess you never think about it necessarily if you're not doing it, but he journaled extensively. And oh, wow. Yeah. Corresponded slightly extensively as well. So, and he, he retained a lot of that stuff. So we are still unpacking a lot of that. So even though there, I didn't have any of those one-on-ones uh, along those lines, uh, I do think that he, uh, there, there is a lot of his voice preserved. Um, yeah, and it's it's a, it's a great thing, and you know, I I think that a lot of time people say, oh, you know, I think in a hundred years no one's going to remember X or Y, and it's like on some level that has to do with how much we preserve uh, and maintain, you know, these records of people. So, well, and there's also like. You know, the reality is like, we're going to be long gone. So who fuck cares? You know, like, you know, I wanted to be here for my kids and maybe their kids. Cause I think that's legitimately the generational thing. And then maybe it becomes like something where like it is in, in an artifact in some way, like they keep that where they can listen to a couple different things, but I don't, but you know, I don't read stuff or seen stuff from long before you were alive or even heard about people's lives that kind of struck you or resonated that kind of thing can be maintained the social order and humanity's future may be brighter and easier and all we want is safety and security for those we love and we love everyone in the world and in the future unless they're nazis well we <laughs> went in a full nardwar there nick for a second <laughs> oh uh, I went to Chicago. Like a Nardwar Jordan Peterson idea. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, definitely take a razor to some of the stuff in this episode. Uh, talk about Jordan Peterson. Uh, I uh, well, I went to an exhibit um, when I was in Chicago because I went to Chicago without fucked up, got turned away at the border, but I went there with Lauren, so uh, I got to kind of like have a mini fucked up weekend uh, without fucked up with Lauren there and it was great like i had some friends fly up for the weekend and stuff but on the day after riot fest because i went to riot fest anyway and it was fun i got to do a song with rise against it was like it was a good day but the day after we went to see this art exhibit at the uh i think it was the museum of contemporary art in chicago and it's on i think it ended it ends on sunday so if you're if you get this up before sunday everyone go if you're in chicago but it's like a history of comic books and comic art in Chicago exhibit. Oh, wow. That has a, there's a deep history in Chicago. Dude, it is wild. Like I, I don't know. I guess I my my knowledge of underground comics is largely limited to the stuff that was coming out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I had no kind of like awareness of how wild that stuff was. I had no idea about the history of sort of like, african-american kind of comic art in that which is it's the exhibit's awesome because they did like two it's kind of like two stories of of comic art throughout the city where it's it's sort of like 
the black and the white comics that are happening at the same time and parallel sort of experiences of, or like timelines that these comics are going through, but very different experiences. But the art is incredible. A lot of amazing line work. I got the catalog. They did uh, black cartoonists in Chicago. Let's life as I see it. But it's also the stuff, I guess they couldn't get clearance maybe to reproduce a lot of the other comic stuff, but they had Daniel Klaus. They had, uh, all, all sorts, everyone like, uh, what's his name who did Dick Tracy. They had underground comics. They had a whole Chris Ware room that he designed with all sorts of art. They had, it was, it was such an awesome exhibit. I'm going to say it's one of my favorite art exhibits I've ever been to. Mary Worth. Uh, they had a whole Mary Worth section. And did they really? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mary Worth for those younger gentlemen and ladies and non-binary or whatever you identify as, I uh, highly recommend you check out Mary Worth. It was a serialized, it was a serialized black and white comic strip in the Daily Funnies of about an agony aunt, aka an advice person. Yeah. Worth. Yeah. So give that, no, but, give that a go. They did not, but they did have a lot of cool, a lot of cool stuff. This, I, I strongly recommend uh, going to see it. I don't know why I wanted to tell you that, Nick, but I, Mary I felt that was is worth it. I felt like anything to get you off the subject matter we were going to wind up talking about there was no, <laughs> positive. We did a somewhat great job of avoiding too many uh, <laughs> terrible subjects. Yeah, we did, and you know, I feel, I feel like uh, we did. Uh, yeah, we did. We did a good job. This is a fun conversation. I love hanging out with you, man. And that was my big talk with the great Damien Abraham of Fucked Up and Turned Out of Punk. Be sure you check out his band. Be sure you check out his podcast. Anytime he's on the radio or TV, he's really great. This chat definitely reminded me of how amazing a broadcaster he is. He, he really is a good talker, and I'm glad that he takes the time. My old buddy takes the time to sit down with me and talk over the virtual fireplace. And, of course, if you enjoyed this talk, you can check out... Uh, we've done many episodes on his podcast, my podcast, and Danko Jones's podcast. We do a podcast where it's the three of us, D&D. So, uh, if you like that, there are other interviews in the archives. Anyway, feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Nick Flay Weekly on Instagram. Nick Flay Weekly on Twitter. Whatever. It's cool. You're great. Have a wonderful night. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day or afternoon. Just be wonderful. Playing that again. Weekly. Nick. Playing again. Weekly.